Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. There are two kinds of technical analysis, which, by the way, really works on Bloomberg Radio, and we say good morning to all of you. (laughs) One of them is stochastic, which is the movement, the spikes, trying to catch the knife in the dark. And the other is trend-based analysis. Anybody that knows my work over the years knows I am totally and completely in the trend-based camp, as is Christopher Verone, the fabulous technical analyst at Strategas. Chris, it was great to hear your children in the background before they were sequestered, before we came on. What is it like naming your young children support and resistance? Did that go over well with Mrs. Verone? (laughs) You know, it didn't go over as well as you might think. Support and resistance is the trend right now. What is the equity market trend now? Are we breaking out of resistance to new higher levels? Yeah, and I I think that's clear. But what I think is less clear and arguably more important is under the surface, we continue to see signs that participation is actually getting broader here. And you see it with just over the last month, the re-involvement of industrials, the improvement in discretionary. I mean, these are groups that have largely been relative laggards for the past two and a half years that are starting to showcase some some type of relative strength. That is welcome, and I think it reflects a broadening of leadership. Right. And that's certainly something I think most participants have been craving. This word relative, folks, is absolutely foundational trend-based analysis. And I want to go to the relativeness, Christopher Rohn, of those eight stocks that are going up. We know who they are, the digital dominance and everything else. For everything else to improve and go up, do they do it on an absolute basis, or do they simply have to do it relative to a stable or even advancing tech group? I think they have to do it on a relative basis, and what I'm encouraged by is that it's actually happening. I'll give you a couple uh, of examples. When you look at like the transportation group, for example, we look at transport relative to utilities as a barometer for cyclicality. I mean, transports have underperformed utilities for the better part of the last two and a half years. That has decisively changed over the last eight to 12 weeks. We see it with the broader industrial sector. Uh, yesterday, consumer discretionary flipped to positive in our relative trend model. So all the things you'd want to see that would support the idea that participation, particularly in relative terms, Tom, as you talk about, I think that's important. Um, all the things you'd want to see in that front are happening. I'm surprised to hear you say this because we hear from Morgan Stanley's, uh, we hear from their chief equity strategist that he thinks that we're going to see a potential sell-off if we get an ongoing optimism in the economy. The idea of Mike Wilson coming out and saying that because of how narrow the leadership has been, it makes this rally fragile. What are you seeing that he's not? Well, I think what's most important, and this has been the focus of our work uh, over the last number of weeks, is that the leadership tone of the equity market we think is telling us, is screaming at us, that you should expect a positive economic surprise in the back half of the year. Uh, we just can't think of any other reason why things like industrials and discretionary and materials and transports would be acting as well as they are here. And frankly, that's pretty consistent with what you would expect to see in the first several months of a new economic cycle. So I think the market is telling us the consensus is probably still pes- is, is still too pessimistic about the trajectory of the economy here. Although, Chris, I wonder about fundamental analysis at a time when Best Buy this morning was the latest company to withdraw any prediction for how their business would do for the rest of this year. How accurate can traders be in this equity market at a time of such limited visibility? 
Well, I would just posit, is this really any different from any other moment in history? And it's easy to say yes, but I would argue that it's not. And by that I mean, go look five, six months off any major market low in history. You're not going to like where the economy was. You're not going to like the visibility that was in front of you. That's the game we play. That's investing. Um, so I, I, I don't think this is as unique as the consensus wants it to be. I think what you've seen historically is markets discount future improvement. I don't think the market's describing the economy today. I think the market's describing the economy that's in front of us, and I think it's stronger than what the consensus expects. Okay, Chris Rowan, I looked at the SPX, and I used a fancy moving average study. This is three moving averages. Good morning, George Kleinman out of Nevada, if you're watching. Chris Rowan, I looked at the trend base, and it's extremely well-behaved, extremely Mm -hmm. well-contained. Can you extrapolate to a target? And if so, how far out can you go with enthusiasm? So the only targets we care about are higher or lower, and that means is the trend up or is the trend down. I think the trend is up here, and that tells us, Tom, what rules we're playing by. And when trends are positive, you buy weakness. You know, it's been five or six months since we've had anything more than a 5 or 6% drawdown. Is it reasonable that we may get something like that over the next several months? Of course it is. But how do we want to treat weakness? We want to be buyers of weakness when participation is expanding and when trend is up. And I think that's still the base case here. Which sector is the best value, the rest relative value? I mean, I want to buy the dip in Amazon. Maybe it happens, maybe it doesn't. The banks are unloved. Which is the Christopher owned sector where you get the pop off everything else? I think industrials are emerging as multi-year leaders here. They, frankly, have been in purgatory for the better part of the last half a decade. I think that's changed in a meaningful way. I, I would encourage everyone to look at an equally weighted industrial sector relative to the S&P. You just broke out from a five-year base. This is the real deal. This is the start of meaningful leadership uh, in that group. Let's say yields rise. At what level mm. do they have to rise to that that could potentially disrupt your theory and you could see a sell-off in stocks? Well, I think what's interesting is this is the point in a new economic cycle where you would actually expect to see yields start to rise. I think the fact that they haven't is, in many respects, adding more fuel to this cyclical bias that has started to emerge. Um, in many respects, you know, go back to, let's call it mid-2018, late 2018, bond yields were 3%. Cyclicality was starting to peak. Um, Chinese stocks were rolling over. Chinese bond yields were rolling over. All the exact opposite trends are playing out right now. So I think there's runway before you could say yields are a big problem to disrupting the story. I don't know whether that's 90 basis Mm. points, 100 basis points, 110 basis points, but I think it's higher than where it is right now. Uh, Very good. Chris Verone, thank you so much. I just got to say, Lisa, there's so few people that work the circuit constructively like Regina Mayer. She owns for the World Economic Forum at Davos, right on down to every other energy conference. She absolutely owns the high ground on this. But Lisa, there's something more important to talk to right now, and that is they're miserable in Irving, Texas this morning. Yeah, it's, uh, they're watching the storm. They're watching Laura bear down on them, which is threatening a whole host of oil reserves. And let's start there, Regina. The idea that you've got these twin storms with Marco actually fizzling out, but Laura is still looking like a hurricane headed toward the Gulf Coast. How much could this disrupt oil production in the U.S.? Well, it's less of a risk on the supply side with oil production because only about 10% of U.S. production comes out of the Gulf of Mexico. And we're sitting quite pretty with regard to crude supply. The thing to keep an eye on is refined product 
supply destruction because 50% of the U.S. refined capacity comes from the Texas and Louisiana Gulf Coast. So based on the current projection with Hurricane or Tropical Storm Laura projected to become a Category 3 hurricane, you could say roughly 25% of gasoline capacity is in the path. I'm less worried about that, though, because I don't think it'll take that capacity offline. Um, but, But there is that risk. And meanwhile, over in Irving, there's another storm, and that is the storm against hydrocarbons with the energy moving away from that area, Exxon being removed from the Dow, the longest serving member of the index after its market share fell from $450 billion of market capitalization back in 2014 to less than $200 billion now. Are we just seeing the beginning of the destruction of the hydrocarbon complex, or is this the end of the destruction? Well, it is. it does mark a shift in the era of where capital wants to go and what investors are going to look at. Our, the tech stocks are clearly on a boom. You know, I wish I had made some different choices, you know, early in the pandemic. But it does indicate that the large industrial, you know, the behemoths of our time are probably not where capital wants to flow. And it does mean that these very large international oil companies have to pivot their portfolios to embrace what's known as the energy transition if they're going to stay relevant. And you see the different players taking different strategies, and I do think they will pivot and survive, but this does indicate a big shift in investor sentiment. You know, Regina, what's the heart of the matter here is combination. I mean, we saw Anadarko take out and what Oxy's done in their overextension and Mr. Buffet coming into play as well. Do you just see an industry roll up to get back to the size of revenues where they have scale to profit? Well, I think it is a scale game, and you're absolutely right there. But, you know, the the bid-ask spreads are still so far apart, and where I would have thought we would have seen more of a wave of mergers and acquisitions, balance sheets are under such pressure that it's difficult to get the capital to make a play, um, and it's difficult to see the consolidation that we need to see. However... You know, there have been some moves and there was Chevron's uh, acquisition of Noble looks very, very smart in this environment. Well, I mean, I was going to go to Chevron, but I really don't want to talk individual securities. I mean, they go after Noble and they got pushed out of Anadarko. I get all that. Does the big money come in? Does private equity come in and start acquiring value priced hydrocarbons? Do you see someone like Blackstone or even BlackRock, for that matter, playing? I think the PE firms have d- have done their bit in the the last decade, uh, especially in the two thousand uh, in the two thousand tens, and most of them are actually trying to pull out now. What I think we'll end up seeing is you'll see assets change hands because the assets still have underlying value, but the companies that are structured around them with the debt and the equity portfolios that they have look less attractive. So I think we're going to have to see more restructuring, more debt consolidation, and then you'll see the assets shift, but maybe less the company logos shifting. Have we already seen, Regina, peak oil demand? I don't think so, Lisa. There has been some that will say 2019 might have been peak demand. We still see projections that'll take us up to 110 million barrels per day, which is still 10 million barrels per day, more than we consume uh, in 2019. And you'll still see that into the 2030 timeframe. We don't have 
a base of energy that will sustain all of our needs that does not include some element of hydrocarbon, at least in the foreseeable future. Do you think the pandemic has accelerated the shift away from hydrocarbons or do you think that it's actually slowed it because of the subduing of the price of oil? I think it has accelerated the shift. We've demonstrated you know, what we can do for the environment and how we can reduce carbon simply by restricting our movements and not flying as much as we were from a business travel perspective, not commuting as much as we were, not going to different shopping centers. That doesn't directly translate into a reduction of gasoline demand, but we've seen the positive impacts we can have on carbon. And most of the other countries, when you look at their stimulus packages, they include green stimulus. Notably absent, the U.S. isn't focusing as much on green stimulus, meaning you know new energy types of transitions. But globally, I believe the pandemic has accelerated the move toward the energy transition. Regina, thank you so much. Regina Mayer with us at KPMG on this historic day. Exxon out of the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Right now, and it is a great joy to speak to Terrence Haynes. He's a Pangea policy, uh, writing a really grounded business-centric policy note out of Washington. And he really sums it up nicely, stuck doing just war duty, I say, out in Western Maryland. Folks, this is not Baltimore, Baltimore, Baltimore. If you go out west of Maryland past Hagerstown, it is some of the most gorgeous country in this nation. And Mr. Haynes uh, joins us from Western Maryland uh, this morning. Terry, the distance from Hagerstown to Baltimore, from Cumberland to Baltimore, is the space between the Republican and the Democratic Party. How, how does Mr. Trump stretch that space? How does he get east of Hagerstown more towards the suburb voters that he needs? I think uh, two ways, Tom. One, he, uh, and you're absolutely right about the, uh, the, the chasm between Hagerstown and Baltimore. Um, the, he does it in two ways. One, uh, he, he excites his base. He tells a story. And, you know, one of the great things about conventions is that they're, they're rare opportunities for a candidate and a party to tell an unfiltered story. And that's what, of course, the Democrats did last week, what the Republicans are doing this week. Um, he reminds people of, of, uh, of, of accomplishments. He contextualizes that. But then that's the positive message. And then the negative message is, of course, he differentiates very strongly from, uh, from what Democrats, uh, the Democrats might prefer. And... It, to, to reach beyond the base and get the independence is actually an opportunity for Trump right now. There was a recent uh, recent poll that was highlighted by the Axios site that uh, showed that only 32 percent of independents had a positive view of Biden. So that's uh, uh, that's fertile ground for Trump to really start hammering in that uh, the economy is at stake, that uh, the law and order is at stake, those sorts of things. And uh, you appeal to people's uh, most basic instincts and hopes and fears. And, you know, you tell that story uh, fairly free of nuance right. and, you know, you can get there. Within this unique 2020 how is his law in order message different from Richard Nixon a lifetime ago? It is, you know, frankly, it's broadly similar, uh, <clears throat> and you know, it, and it, it and it appeals to the most likely voters. And this is a this is this is an election that's already substantially tightened. I mean, this whole idea that Biden's running away with anything is uh, last month's news. You've got. You know, people like to talk about real clear politics average. The national average for Biden now is about seven and a half. And in the battleground states, 
uh, it is uh, about four. One way to look at that is uh, it's barely above the margin of error, and we're two months away from the election. Uh, and so, you know, he can hammer on that and uh, and appeal to people's uh, appeal to people's pocketbooks and their and their most basic desires and fears about security. Uh, and he can continue to uh, to to eat into what remains of a Biden lead. You know, it was interesting to me when I was looking at your notes, Terry, that you think that uh, President Trump has a 60 percent chance of reelection. That does not seem to be the consensus. How much pushback do you get to that? Oh, I get pushback about that all the time, uh, Lisa. And I, I would say two things. One, three things, but one of which I've already said. The race is already tightening and kind of moving in that direction. Secondly, uh, the last thing that polls are are predictive, and any any pollster would tell you that. Thirdly, uh, the, these polls look at the wrong things, frankly. No disrespect to anybody that's doing them. Uh, but they're looking at, by and large, national, uh, the national snapshots of registered voters. Uh, what you will then, and they're already tightening, and what you'll start to see is more attention paid to state-by-state races of likely voters. And there's a huge disparity between registered and likelies. Uh, that'll mean that the race tightens even further, that Trump wins. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, turnout here is going to make all the difference. And frankly, you know, tr- Trump touts an enthusiasm uh, advantage, uh, but that enthusiasm advantage is, uh, is real. And uh, and it's going to be hard for Democrats to make that up. Well, when you talk about who's going to win the Democrat, the 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 presidential race, it's unclear what the market effect will be. It is clear that if there is an increase in tensions between the U.S. and China, that is broadly viewed as a market negative. What is President Trump's policy that we may hear from Secretary of State Mike Pompeo tonight, especially given the easing in some of the tensions of late between the U.S. and China? Uh, let me say two things about that. One, what Pompeo is likely to say is, uh, look, you know, only you know, we've we wasted two decades on hoping China would uh, <clears throat> would, would grow up uh, and become a mature member of the community of nations, and you know, and uh, take the WTO uh, obligations and others uh, seriously. Uh, we're clearly past that, and you know, but only Trump could have stood up to that. Obama and Biden were responsible for a decade of that, that sort of thing. Um, the other thing I would say is that markets, I think markets uh, miss to some extent. They tend to think that one bad thing is happening with between the United States and China. That means that all bad things are, are, are increased. I don't think that's true. It remains in the mutual interest of the U.S. and China to continue to trade and to continue to say positive things about phase one, even as tensions are on the rise between the two nations and other geopolitical matters. Uh, it was uh, the former British prime minister that noted that uh, you know, great nations have only interests, not friends. It remains in the mutual interest of these two countries to trade. They'll continue to do that, and they'll continue to say positive things about phase one, which I think is a market plus. Terry Haynes, thank you so much. What we thought we'd do right now, usually, you know, it's economic data, 830 and all that, is to have the definitive conversation of the day on what we're going to hear from Chairman Powell. We can do that with James Sweeney. He is at Credit Suisse. He's been there all of 20 years, which uh, uh, shocks me as well. But James Sweeney has absolutely turned cautious here. I was stunned in his last visit with us how cautious he was on the American economic experiment. And we get a brief on what Mr. Powell needs to do. James Sweeney, this is always an important speech that's widely understood. Inflation will be the topic how does a central bank manufacture inflation? 
Well, I mean, they know that they need to continue to supply stimulus to the economy, and they've been moving towards this framework review, uh, which is likely to, to signal a tolerance for overshooting inflation, meaning you know somewhere north of 2% inflation would not trigger immediate interest rate responses from the Fed sometimes several years in the future. Uh, so that's really what we expect from them today. Uh, in general, though, I, the short-term caution is about you know, the lack of a stimulus bill, persistent high unemployment, uh, risks of, of inflation staying lower for longer. And I think the Fed is very focused on all of these risks. Uh, and I think some people in financial markets are not. Uh, but we will see as we go through what's set to be a pretty turbulent autumn, whether you know market and economic data could trigger uh, more than just talk from the Fed, but I, I give, more action. I give immense credit, folks, to Olivier Blanchard as tour of duty at the IMF, now at the Peterson Institute, for jump-starting this discussion. But, James, what the magnitude difference here is different. Olivier Blanchard created a firestorm of controversy talking about a goosing of 3 and even 4% inflation. I'm not hearing that from the Fed. What are they talking about, nudging it up to 2.05 or 2.1% inflation? Yeah, I think it's in the tens of basis points that they would tolerate. I don't think we're talking about 3% core inflation or anything like that. And, and I mean, the difference between headline and core is important because energy prices can throw the headline inflation numbers around a lot. But I, I don't think that we're going to see 3% core inflation with, you know, the Fed, mm-hmm. the short rate at, at close to zero um, anytime in the future. But But what they're saying is that immediately drifting above 2%, is not going to prompt immediate interest rate increases. James, we've getting we're, we've been getting inflation, pretty some some, some pretty serious inflation. I'm speechless, uh, tongue tied over how much asset prices have inflated, and the fact that we hear less and less about this from Federal Reserve officials who dismiss that as just a part of how to get to a more stable economy. But at what point does the Fed have to take a look at just how much asset prices have increased, and and the lack of any gains that we're seeing necessarily in the economy from the regime that led to those higher asset prices. Well, that's right. I mean, it's it's the lack of attractive yields on fixed income assets has squeezed investors into higher risk <clears> assets <throat> like like equities and you've ended up with some strong equity performance and some and some high valuations. And as long as you think that inflation risks are to the downside, then the Fed is going to continue to trick continue to signal low rates, which is which is supportive for for equities. Um, but if you look farther out, you know, maybe a day will come where financial stability risks are triggered by these strong risky assets, or maybe a day will come where equities go up so much that, you know, some economic event triggers a sharp reversal in the opposite direction. Uh, and then you've got real troubles. If you've got below average inflation, and now you have an unfriendly equity market instead of a friendly one. So the, the Fed is, is really on, on thin ice here, um, given given where the economy is. And there's another way of looking at this story, which is can low yields and even lower yields from here create more jobs? What's the Fed actually doing with improving the labor backdrop? Well, I, I think that if you look at the housing data right now, I, I think there's a clear channel for job creation from low rates. Uh, it runs through low mortgage rates, uh, high housing starts. Um, we have seen some resilience in the housing sector, and historically, 
housing has been a sector that is, is quite correlated to, to Fed decisions and where interest rates are. So the Fed is helping, but the economy has a lot of issues and a lot of sectors are not as directly correlated with, with interest rates and financial conditions as housing. And, um, and, and, and because of that, you know, we still have a very, very high unemployment rate and it's likely not to be back down in the comfortable four to five percent range for several years at least. James Sweeney with us is Credit Suisse. We will continue. We welcome all of you on Bloomberg Radio, Bloomberg Television Worldwide, a simulcast. John Farrell, Lisa Bramowitz, and Tom Keene. I do want to look at the data. Equities haven't moved. Bonds have moved. Futures up 14. Dow futures up 176. And the yield really breaks out a 1.41% in the 30-year bond. That's a solid five basis point move. These are higher yields and lower uh uh, bill note and bond uh, prices as well. Dollar weakness this morning and gold implodes negative eight dollars down to nineteen thirty one uh, the ounce as well. <clears throat> James Sweeney, I, I really want to talk about the caution that you had last time, and it's certainly something you mentioned. The Fed is watching as well. Where's the unemployment rate right now? And you mentioned we're never going to get back to four percent. Where are we heading? Well, I mean, I, I think this is still pandemic unemployment. So I, I think there's a lot of businesses wh- whose customers are not showing up yet at, at normal rates. And so the, the labor demand just isn't there. So I, I think, you know, we're well north of 10 percent in unemployment. But I, I think when we get the vaccine, when the pandemic is under better control and people start returning to you know hotels and, and mm-hmm. airlines and, and restaurants in a, in a more normal way, unemployment is going to fall very sharply. Um, but I think there's a lot of damage done, and I, I don't think it's going to fall all the way to 5%, say, next year, even in a pretty good outcome for the pandemic. So it's going to take well, a while to heal this economy. And then to combine this, James, and you've been so good at this over the last 15 years, you have to fold it into wage deflation, the great fear, wage disinflation, or wage inflation. What is your call on wages given this crazy environment we're in? Well, I mean, high unemployment just can't be good for wages. Um, right. But in the wage data, there's a lot going on at the moment. I mean, we've seen a lot of people, evidence of a lot of people actually taking wage cuts, which, which normally doesn't happen during, during the pandemic. So you've seen some wages actually ratchet lower. Um, in, in some industries, you, you may be desperate for workers that you can't find and wages may be rising. And, and we're seeing this in consumer goods prices as well. Um, a increase in variation in prices at the unit of a, of a job or at the unit of a specific good. But in aggregate, if the economy is running at a very low level of demand with low GDP and high unemployment, you know, the pressure on wages is going to, is going to be down rather than, rather than up and, and same for, for inflation for a while. What do you see as the outlook for younger individuals entering the workforce? This has been an increasing area of focus as this area has been particularly hard hit. Those entry level jobs just have been completely destroyed as people stay home. How much will that set this generation back in terms of wages, in terms of household creation? Is that factoring into any of your estimates right now? Well, I mean, on long, on, from a long-term perspective, you have to look at those things. I, I think some of the literature does suggest that um, losing opportunities in the very early stage of your career can be really harmful. So you hope that people are finding ways to invest in themselves and get some more education and, and, and things like that to get them on a good track. But there's no doubt that the opportunities available to new graduates <clears throat> this year are going to be abnormally abnormally weak because of the pandemic. It's just one of the many painful consequences of this. Do you see business investment 
Um, it's business investment is 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 soft. Um, it's it's improving from you know the shutdown period, but it's not it, it's not great. Um, we're seeing better results in residential investment, which is which mm-hmm. is home home buying, and we're seeing a, a decent rebound in, in consumption and and consumer spending. But you know business investment businesses are going to be cautious. Uh, while we're still in the pandemic. So even though we have very low interest rates, et cetera, um, I, I think businesses will wait for clarity and you hope that you're going to have a big pickup investment you know, over the next 12 to 18 months. But this is not the time for it yet, except for in a, in a few special sectors. Wonderful. James Sweeney, thank you so much. The Credit Suite Chief Economist. Bruce Kasman joins us now, head of economics for Mr. Diamond and J.P. Morgan. Bruce Kasman, your note this weekend I thought was exceptionally good. It was a two-part note. Let's talk inflation first. You partition between short-term supply shock inflation and the medium-term reality. Discuss. Okay, so I think what we're going to see on inflation to some degree mirrors what we're going to see on growth. We had a a horrible collapse in activity in the spring, and we're going to have a surge as we go through the spring and summer, led by goods-producing industries. The combination of that with the supply chain disruptions, which we're already seeing in some place, we think is going to lead to a particularly rapid move up in inflation, particularly in goods. And I think uh, the U.S. is going to be a big part of this, and we're starting to see it, and we think we'll see it with the PCE report on Friday. However, this is likely to be a temporary phenomenon, and as we settle into more stable growth, as the price increases for the supply side um, shock begins mm-hmm. to fade, we end up with a world where we think we have an incomplete overall recovery. We have slack. Uh, we have limited tools on the part of central banks to really add more stimulus. And we think we settle into something lower on inflation with, as in the growth side, the split between services and goods being particularly pronounced. Politically, and with the collective memory of the 60s, can any central bank, including the Powell Fed, can they ignore lumber prices in the short-term surge in inflation you call for? Oh, I think they can. And I think the Fed, if you go back and look at 2010-11, they did the same thing. Uh, they've lived through the last decade. Uh, they have faced persistent undershoots in inflation. They're committed to trying to get inflation up. And I think they're going to be very vigilant here in holding the line. However, if we do get the fallback, the problem is not that the Fed can be patient in the face of higher inflation. What they can't do is provide much stimulus in the face of disappointing low inflation. So, Bruce, when you talk about your temporary bump uh, in inflation, give us a sense of how much of that is supply versus you know a, a real increase or rebound in demand. It's really hard to, to separate those. Um, in fact, if you look at the recession Goods pricing did not go down as much. Food prices actually went up. It does feel, given how sharply activity fell in those sectors, that there was some supply disruptions. Supply chains weren't functioning. Distributional lines weren't working. So there was some supply effect. Now what's going to happen is those problems are not going away. And now we're getting a surge in demand. So I don't think it's easy to separate those two. I think they're both contributing. I think it's in the services sector where it's easier to say, while there are some supply side pressures, the weakness in demand, the slow recovery there is probably going to be the dominant factor in terms of limiting the underlying pickup in inflation. But both factors, I think, are mm-hmm. quite important. We're looking for the fastest pace of goods price inflation globally in over a decade. 
over the second half of this year. Paul, the second half, uh, uh, Bruce, the second half of your note really is a beautiful exposition about how the economy is going to come back, but not come back to where we where we knew it. And as you know, I, I look at this almost as a as, as, as graphically an asymptote. What are we coming back to? A, a set lower potential GDP, a set lower just vibrancy, nominal GDP. What are we coming back to? Well, I think the easy answer to that is we're coming back to a number of challenges, challenges that have to do with big dislocations in some key industries, challenges that have to do with the fact that, you know, in our forecast, we're at least three or four million jobs short a year and a half from now from where we were before the the crisis. What's harder to see is the political response, uh, the economic response. As you know, after the global financial crisis, a lot of the problems we faced were because of the reverberations politically. Uh, the early tightening in U.S. fiscal policy, uh, the European sovereign crisis. So a lot will depend on how politics responds. A key call we have is we're just not confident that policymakers can respond to the challenges of the expansion, even though they responded very well to the challenges of the crisis. So I think there's every reason to worry about potential growth. There's every reason to worry about political pressures because of inequality and dislocation. But I think it's pretty hard to map those specifically mm-hmm. other than recognizing we're going to have a pretty incomplete recovery with a lot of challenges ahead. So, Bruce, do you expect uh, any material help out of our friends in Washington, D.C. in terms of uh, additional round of meaningful stimulus? Well, I'm not saying I'm confident, but we still have a view that we'll get <clears throat> something between a trillion and a trillion and a half package before the end of September. We already will have done some damage by the delay of passing it. But I I think the key point about U.S. fiscal policy is that whether we get a package in September or not, the way we're implementing it, the crisis mode was effective in getting money in the hands of households. But this temporary stop and go type policy Mm -hmm. is going to be very difficult to be successful in terms of managing the early stages of the recovery. And I contrast Europe, where I think there's a much steadier hand in the way policy is being delivered. And that's a big contrast to what we saw in the last Mm -hmm. decade. Fascinating. Bruce Kasman, thank you so much for joining us on Short Notice. He's chief economist at J.P. Morgan as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.